My partner, Krista, loves to tell friends and family, even random strangers we meet at bars, that her life is filled with screaming. While she revels in the quiet and basks in silence, I am the opposite. I lose myself in sound. Between teaching online, writing this show, and editing for the Scared to Death podcast, I spend vast periods of my days on my laptop. And all around me is chaos. Music blares from different rooms of the house, multiple fans buzz and whir. And because I've never really been a desk sitter, I park myself on the couch to work, and a movie is always on the television. Nine times out of ten, that's a horror film. Hence the provided uneasy soundtrack to my lady's life. Invariably, I get asked why I watch so many horror movies. Krista herself gets fed up and asks why she always has to come down the stairs to the anguished cries of the final girl. I'm not a sick man. At least, I don't think I am. I don't enjoy the suffering of others. So why so much horror? Well, I think it's two reasons. One, no matter how bad of a day I'm having, no matter if I've lost my job or got my car stolen, if my heart was broken, the characters in those movies, they're always having a way worse day. Okay, maybe that does make me a little sick, but I guess it's a reminder that things aren't always as bad as they seem. They could be worse. The other reason for horror is that I, I want to be scared again. I feel like I'm constantly chasing that feeling. I have been for like 20 years, ever since I saw John Carpenter's The Thing. I'm not saying that I'm never afraid. In fact, that is usually an everyday occurrence. Afraid of writing a terrible chapter, of not getting through to my students, of disappointing loved ones. I'm very afraid of failing, though after doing it so often, I think I should be used to it. But these are very human fears. Everyone has them. Threats to one's self-worth, their ego. Now, I think I'm talking about wanting to feel just scared again. That sensation you get from a horror movie that keeps you up at night that you think about for days. Maybe I'm desensitized now. Maybe I've just seen too many of them. Actually, I recently began finding and listing all the films I've watched in my life on Letterboxd, and I'm close to 3,500. And I'd contend that more than half of those have been within the horror genre. So maybe I've just seen it all before. Or, especially today, Maybe the world we live in is much more terrifying than any of those we could fathom dreaming up. Is that why I write? Am I trying to recreate the sensation that I've been missing? Am I trying to scare myself? They do say that nothing is more frightening than what you can conjure in the depths of your own mind. And speaking of conjuring, before we get into this chapter today, I had some awesome reviews this week and I wanted to give them a shout out. Um, Logged Go, Logged Go, LG, um, and KB1130 for very thoughtful reviews. Oh, and um, JKY212 from Australia. Thanks to all of you for conjuring words that gave me the feels. Again, reviews truly do help get the show into the charts and into the ears of more listeners. If you haven't yet, help out the show and leave a few words on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or both. And that's... Enough with the self-promotion. Ladies and gentlemen, the doctor is in, and the haunt is on.
Chapter 17 What have you done? Teresa asked, shocking herself by being the first to speak. I... I don't know, Marie said, not making eye contact with her or anyone. The woman was crying, slick with blood and sweat, and she was shaking, the vibration visible even from a few feet away. When Marie took her hand away from Austin's neck, she held up the plate shard, as if this were the answer. Teresa couldn't remember a time when her heart felt lower in her stomach. When defining herself, and this was often an internal monologue, Teresa Stafford usually began with her faith. A Christian woman, devoted parishioner of the First Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, South Carolina, with a small but dedicated congregation some 20 miles from their lakeside home, she helped with bake sales and Chad counted the weekly tithing. Second to this was her identification as a military spouse, an Air Force wife. Though Chad was long since retired, it was still difficult not defaulting to the notion that she was the something to someone else. This isn't to say that she couldn't take care of herself. She was strong, and an even stronger-willed woman. But it had been so long since she'd needed to. The United States military scheduled, planned, prescribed their lives for the better part of three decades. And that regimentation carried over into her husband's second career as a general practitioner. What wasn't being taken care of by Chad's leftover training, his attention to cleanliness and rational organization of bills and home protection, Teresa was in charge of. She'd learned to be a prepper. Not exactly the doomsday sort, though some might say that was borderline. A career in insurance helped, and she learned to view everything as a potential threat or danger. And now, Teresa figured she had a plan for everything. Contingency kits in their cars, gold bars in case of economic collapse, bug-out bags ready to be snatched up, in the off chance of political invasion or natural disaster. So in that way, Teresa identified herself also as a woman who was prepared. Nothing, however, could have prepared her for what happened since stepping aboard the Baroness. The scenario had never arisen in one of her church sermons or YouTube conspiracy videos. And now this. Marie had, over the course of just a few days, become a friend. Someone Teresa thought she would stay in touch with. But here was blood, broken dishes, and turned over chairs. Teresa was sure as hell not prepared to stumble upon a murder scene. Was that what this was? Was her new friend, the secret romance novelist, a murderer? Teresa was torn between rushing to help her friend or backing away, out of the woman's reach. But something deep inside made the choice for her, and she inched forward. Behind, Chad whispered her name, but Teresa was already kneeling. Gingerly, she placed an open palm on Marie's back. She could feel the woman's hitching breath, and when Marie didn't lash out at her, Teresa began to rub in small circles. She cooed, repeating, shh. Seconds felt like hours, but soon, Marie evened out a bit and finally said, He attacked me. Austin attacked me. How? Why? Teresa asked, though she flashed on the magic show and the deranged announcements the blonde man had been making. I was, Marie began, breathing deep. 
I was in the kitchen collecting the food, and when I got back out here, he just started swinging that oar at me. Teresa looked to see the weapon. Still spotted with red stain and flecked with glass pieces within Austin's grasp, she rubbed harder, encouraging Marie to continue. I thought he was joking at first, Marie said. Seriously? Greg said from behind them, the nervous sarcasm very apparent. Marie didn't respond to him, but instead walked them through what had taken place. They listened in rapt silence, and when she finished, the tears came back and Chad stepped around to kneel over Austin. He reached out. Marie asked, what are you doing? I'm making sure he's actually dead, Chad said, and placed two fingers on the side of the man's neck that hadn't been torn open. Well, Greg said. Therese looked back. Greg and Carolyn were close together, holding hands. The critic held the pilfered radio against his chest as if it were a life preserver. Chad shook his head. Looks like you got the jugular. Can you walk? Cringing at this, Teresa wanted to scold him, to remind him of a thing called tact. But again, as a military spouse, she knew he wasn't trying to be rude. He was simply identifying the problem, neutralizing threats. Boom. On to the solution. Still, Teresa thought, go easy. Wait, Greg said. I'm not trying to be the asshole here, but how do we know she's telling the truth? I mean, we just met her, um, them... Greg, Carolyn said. What? I'm just putting it out there. We all just met, Carolyn said. You just met me, didn't you? Yeah, but that's nothing, Teresa said, cutting him off. Any doubts she might have had about Marie were long gone. She could feel that through the woman's shuddering back. This was not the way a woman would act if she'd been planning to kill her husband. This was self-defense. We don't have time for a formal inquiry, you're just going to have to trust her and us. Greg stayed quiet, and Teresa imagined Carolyn was squeezing his hand harder to keep him that way. Well, we are in a bit of a hurry, Chad said. We might still have time to get to Lifeboat. Might? Marie asked. Again, her eyes were fixed on Austin's unmoving body. Well, Greg's handy radio there has been teaching us a few things, Chad said. The two of them figured out how to reconnect with us because of all the chatter, and they made their way down to the boats. Imagine our surprise when the stairwell doors opened and there was a librarian with a forty-five. Teresa watched her husband pull the pistol out from his waistband and hover it above Austin's face. Marie's attention shifted, and Teresa knew that Chad wasn't trying to scare her, rather giving her a not-so-subtle hint that their group had regained some measure of control. Marie's hand was suddenly on Teresa's knee. Where did you get the gun? Marie asked. She sounded as if she were regaining some of herself. From a... Carolyn said, trailing off. From a guard, Greg finished. Or a crewman or a pirate. I don't know what to call him. But Greg's radio, the damn thing, Chad said. Stowing the handgun again. Also made it quite clear that Donnie and his merry band of loonies know exactly where we are. I figured that was the case, but now they're calling us by name which means they have been thinning out the herd and are zeroing in on some of the stragglers. They're probably watching us right now. Everyone had already been thinking that, but hearing her husband say it made Teresa hold her breath. Instinctively, she grabbed hold of Marie's hand. Thankfully, Marie's tears had subsided some, and she squeezed Teresa back. Not just them, 
Greg said. It's like they have some sort of hold over people. They're recruiting. People are turning on each other. Well, I mean, obviously you... Greg, Carolyn said, cutting him off. Shit, sorry. Chad shifted his weight. The critic isn't wrong. Look, I I'm sorry about your husband. I liked him, but sometimes in life or death situations, people will... No, it doesn't matter. Nothing is what it seems. And the sooner we get off this ship, the better. Again, can you walk? I think so. Marie tried on her own and struggled. So Teresa and Chad helped on either side. Marie wobbled, but remained upright. Greg, Carolyn, Chad said, push that cart of food outside. What about you? Greg asked, and the gun. Don't worry about that, I got your six. My six? Greg said, then to Carolyn. Still can't believe it. We're talking about trust here, and the first guy we see, you just give him the gun. Call me a bad feminist, Carolyn said, leading Greg toward the cart. I know I can take care of myself, but I figured it was best to give a loaded handgun to someone who knew how to use it. The couple continued their whispered argument and were soon joined by the squeal of the rolling cart's wheel. In spite of everything, Teresa felt heartened by witnessing a young couple's first round of bickering. She then slung an arm around Marie and focused on getting her moving. Her right leg was fractured or at the very least sprained, so with each step Marie moaned and dug her fingers into Teresa's shoulders. Chad was circling them, then darting off. Twice, Teresa heard the crash of metal and plastic as her husband was destroying the cameras he could find. And then the five remaining guests from Table 9 were back on the open-air emergency corridor. Steady, hard rain pattered the black ocean surface and sent sprays under their faces. Greg's radio chuffed to life. Going somewhere? Donnie's voice, now focused solely on their group rather than the whole ship, was devoid of his false cheeriness. You guys uh, thinking about one of those lifeboats? Greg held the radio out, as if wanting someone else to take it from him. No one did. That's not a bad idea, and I wish you the best of luck, but I would be remiss if I didn't give you a few words of advice. As you know, the well-being of our cruisers is of paramount importance. His sick laugh was cut short when he clicked off then returned with, So consider this. You are three days out from dry land, at least by powered watercraft. And those floating coffins right there, they don't have a propulsion system. Aircraft, of course, would be faster. But how will they know how to find you? We made sure to disable any sort of communication aboard the emergency vessels, which means you'll have to rely on hope or prayer or whatever you think might save your lives. The channel went dead again. And Teresa thought, he's letting this sink in. He's trying to break us. Greg started to pull the radio back from this another group when Donnie came through once more. So I'm going to make you a deal. There are five of you left. If, in the next five minutes, there are only three left, those three will have a free pass. They can rest assured knowing they will make it to where we're going unscathed. Another pause. Chad went for the radio, but Teresa stopped him, whispering, Let him finish. One of you is already safe, and what a show, Marie. There was a round of applause behind his voice. We honestly didn't think you had it in you. Lady novelist turned murderess. You've got his attention, I'm sure of it. Can you feel him? 
Can you hear him calling to you from the bottom of the ocean? Marie's body was quaking again, and Teresa pulled her in closer. Don't listen to him. So, you other four, Donnie went on, make your choice, or we will be there soon and make it for you. Oh, one last thing. I almost forgot. If you pretend like you aren't hearing me and you continue with your little escape plan, consider this. How do you know we didn't put a few surprises in those lifeboats? A little explosive or, I don't know, a box of snakes. Maybe we drilled holes in all the right places just to make the last leg of your journey all that much more interesting. Ta-ta. No one spoke for a few seconds. And then Chad broke the silence. Not with anything coherent, but a roar. He kicked the rolling cart and Greg jumped out of the way before it slammed into the railing. Two large cans of refried beans that had been teetering on top fell over the side. The sound of their splashing into the Atlantic was masked by the heavy rain. Then Chad weaved behind the group and Teresa watched him reach for a nearby security camera. Chad tugged, murmured a string of curses, and she could see the cords in his neck. Now that would be something, she thought. After all this, a heart attack. At last, the camera came free, and Chad returned to the circle with the device in his hand. He held it out like a dog returning with the limp body of a bird. When the group, Teresa included, didn't match his enthusiasm, Chad reared back and smashed the camera into the deck. Pieces pinged and clicked off the lifeboat's shell. He kicked the mess of circuitry over the side of the ship and stormed off. As Greg said, did he really just... Teresa heard her husband shouting and heading toward another camera farther down the deck. Marie swayed and then slid down to the floor. It was more like she deflated, the last of her energy seemingly sucked away, and Teresa couldn't find the strength to help. Carolyn had let go of Greg's hand and was chewing on her nails, while her new boyfriend had begun pacing. Click. Static. A voice on the radio again. Don't do that. Everyone froze. Even Chad stopped yanking on the camera. This voice was different. Deeper. Familiar. You hear me, Iceman? Leave the camera alone. If you break it, I can't see you. Oh my God, is that... Carolyn trailed off. Near Teresa's feet, Marie had fallen into tears once more and Chad was rushing back to the group. I think it, Greg said, but stopped when Chad grabbed the radio from him. He then held the receiver to his mouth like he was going to respond, but hesitated. The radio chirped. What do you say? My good dinner friends. Did you miss Lazy? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Ghost Modernist. Follow me on Instagram for updates about the show and pictures of my dogs at The Ghost Modernist. Remember to write a few words about the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and then I can give you a shout out. The theme music for today's episode, as always, was provided by Atrium Carcheri. Remember, there are two types of people in this world the haunters and the haunted. Which one are you?